Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. Let's open our Bibles to Acts 15. We're continuing to move our way verse by verse through the book of Acts, and we have come to one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, This title of the message is Amazing Grace, and grace is amazing, and grace will be both defended in Acts 15 and defined. And I would just say to you up front that grace is amazing, but it's not just when we talk about it. Grace must be embraced, and grace must be lived. We get grace, and we give grace. So grace is doctrinal, but as we'll see in this chapter, it is also relational, we live out the implications of grace. Second uh, Corinthians 8.9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. So grace is really found in the person of Jesus. If you ever wondered, well, how should we respond living a life of grace? You need to look no further than the face of Jesus Christ. He is the face of grace. And so when you see him respond to people who were broken and sinful and outcast of society, you see him respond to religious hypocrisy, that is the face of grace. And we are to model our lives uh, after Jesus Christ. So let's pray for his blessing. Father, thank you for Jesus and thank you that he is the face of grace. And thank you that through grace we are saved That's not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, it is not of works, lest any man should boast. Yet, Paul goes on to say that you have prepared us for good works, which you foreordained that we should walk in them. And I pray that you will speak to us, Lord, through this message, that you will show us this first Jerusalem council, so important because they had to really define and defend grace and It's going to show us the amazing depths and reality of grace. And sometimes I think many of us feel that grace is too good to be true. But it's what the Bible teaches. And we want to live a life in response to grace, which is a life of gratitude. Not because we have to, but because you've given us so much. Our lives should really be P.S. notes of gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for saving me for saving a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Show us the beauty of grace, Lord, and teach us to live by grace as we go through the scriptures, guide us by your Holy Spirit. Teach us marvelous things from your word that we might become more like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to give you two words for grace. The first is a Greek word called charis. It is C-H-A-R-I-S in English. Charis means unmerited favor, and it's the Greek word for grace in the New Testament. A good definition of grace is this. It is the love of God going out toward the utterly undeserving. Grace is the love of God going out toward the utterly undeserving. The greatest expression of grace is sacrificial love. And Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples if you, what? 
love one another. This is how the world will know that we are a community of grace when we show love one toward another. It will differentiate us from the world when we accept and love each other. In the Hebrew picture language, the word for grace is from the root chanan, C-H-A-N-A-N, chanan. It means to be inclined toward or to favor. We learned, uh, we lean toward, we give compassion to, we stop and make camp with what is acceptable to our eye. It means, grace in the Old Testament means to find favor or grace in the eyes of someone, namely God, and thus find acceptance. So one, of a good, one good communication of grace is acceptance. It is loving somebody just as they are. This is a key to marriage, by the way. If you think you're going to go into marriage and change your spouse, they have shown you their best already. I've got news for you. You've already gotten their best. Now you must apply grace. And, you, and all God's people say, Amen. Oh, Lord. Right? So Jesus is the face of grace. And 1 Peter 5.10 calls God the God of all grace. So grace is doctrinal, but here it is also very relational because the issue now in the church is whether Jew and Gentile will actually embrace the mystery of the gospel which was been given to Paul that Jew and Gentile are actually one body in Jesus Christ. And there was a lot to divide them. Culturally speaking, there was a lot uh, in dress and food and how they conducted themselves. And today, we have the same challenges. Because God has a big house, have you noticed? He lets people into his house who are all different. People wear their hair different. Some people pierce. Some people have tattoos. Some people wear vests and ties. And you're like, oh, jeez, what's going on with that? Right? Depending on your perspective, you could say, I think a Christian should look like this. This is how a Christian wears their hair. This is how a Christian dresses. This is the kind of music they listen to. This is the kind of worship music they appreciate. That's real Christianity. And we start to make a model in our minds about what a true Christian looks like. But only God knows the heart, right? And so the Gentiles were, were coming into the church in gobs and, and the door was not only open, they were flooding through it and rejoicing and Paul and Barnabas are seeing the hand of God. But then you know what happened. There were people, namely of the, the Pharisaic background, uh, people who had grown up as Pharisees and had come to embrace Jesus. They were believers according to the text we're going to look at. And they said, no, 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 wait a minute. You can't tell these people that they're simply saved by grace through faith. There is much more. And they have been known now by the name of Judaizers. And what the Judaizers did, and they're written about in Galatians, which we'll go to in a moment, is they tried to make people Jewish to be Christians. So when you think of the word Judaizer, just think of someone trying to convert someone to Judaism in order to be acceptable to God. Now prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when Gentiles were coming to synagogue and so forth, they were listening in, they were hearing of the one true God of the Bible, and some of them did decide to convert. And to convert, you needed to be circumcised, you needed to keep the festivals and the Sabbath day and the food laws. Some decided not to, but they were still considered God-fearers. 
They feared Almighty God. They were drawn to the God of Israel, but they didn't necessarily want to convert to Judaism. Now, as Paul and Barnabas go and the mystery of the gospel has gone forth, all these people are coming. Peter gets the vision of the sheet, clean and unclean animals. God says, Peter, rise, kill and eat. He says, oh, no, no, no. God's showing him something about not to call people unclean and showing him things about table fellowship and food. So Peter gets led by the Holy Spirit to the house of a man named Cornelius. And he says, you know, it's unlawful for me to enter, but I'm going to do it because God has shown me not to call anybody unclean. And he goes in and he says, hey, just one question. Why am I here? And they said, well, we want to hear what you have to say about this gospel. And Cornelius tells them the story of an angelic visit and how the Spirit's moving. And Peter declares the gospel. And as he's declaring the death and resurrection of Christ, the Holy Spirit falls on uncircumcised Gentile people. They all uh, evidence that by the speaking of the gift of tongues, they haven't been circumcised and they haven't even gone into the waters of baptism yet. And they're born again of the Holy Spirit. And the circumcised believers, Jewish men standing there, could not believe it. They were like, they have the same spirit. But they haven't been converted into Judaism. They haven't been circumcised. They don't keep the food laws or the festivals or the Sabbath day. But they are believers. And the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile that day went down. And now, Jew and Gentile were coming into one church under one Lord. Now, the reverse, you have to understand as well, is just because that came down, it didn't mean that a Jewish person had to stop being Jewish. As we go through the book of Acts, in the next chapter, you'll watch Paul circumcise Timothy. You'll watch Paul take a vow later connected to a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts. Paul did not stop being Jewish, or he didn't stop keeping the Torah just because he was a Christian. But his point was, don't make Gentiles become Jews to become acceptable to God. If you still want to celebrate the festivals and the, and the Sabbath, and I think for the most part, Orthodox Jews did and Paul did, praise God. But don't force them to do the same. That was the Judaizing heresy. That's what Paul was fighting against in this particular section. So we'll backtrack for a moment uh, in order to pick up the text, and then we'll move into chapter 15, go to Acts 14, look at verse 26. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, the missionary team of uh, Paul and Barnabas. Acts 14, 26, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived, Acts 14, 27, and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So much rejoicing, many stories of faith on the part of Gentile believers, non-Jews coming into the kingdom. And some men came from Judea and began teaching the brethren. So they seemed to be men who had teaching credentials. They were teaching the brethren, key word, unless, Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I don't know what Paul and Barnabas been telling you folks, but I am going to schedule a Bible study. I'll hand out flyers and let me straighten you guys out. Uh, you can't just come into the kingdom by exercising faith in the grace of God. No, 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 no. Uh, line up. We're going to start circumcising everybody. And then we'll give you a new menu for your diet. And then we'll give you the religious calendar. And this is what you must do in order to be saved. And without it, 
you can't be saved. Now, there's a modern face of this. You know the modern face? Sometimes it's inside Orthodox Christianity. There's stories of people who've grown up in Pentecostal churches, apostolic churches, and we could probably talk about a lot of churches that put a, they put a legalistic trip on people. I read one pastor who said that he had somebody come up to him and comment on his dress after he gave a message and said, you have mixed threads in your clothing, therefore you are violating the law of Moses. Or, uh, you, you know what, you can't just simply give an, an altar call to these people. You've got to take them through this process in order for them to be saved. Why don't you do that? Because the Bible doesn't teach that. Now, we know that this is happening not only in the Catholic Church. I grew up Catholic, but I will tell you, wonderful Catholic brethren who I love, and there's a lot of wonderful people there, but they pack into the Catholic Church every weekend because they believe that they have to participate in the consecration of the Mass. When the priest consecrates the Mass, he literally believes he's calling down the body, soul, blood, and divinity that there is a transubstantiation happening, that the elements of communion change into some sense the physical body and blood of Christ, and without partaking of it, you lose merit with God. So if you messed up during the week, you need the Mass to get you back where you're supposed to be. And if you don't take the Mass, you lose merit with God and you could be in danger. It's happening in the Orthodox Church where people are told until you go into the baptismal, your sins are not really washed away and you have to partake of communion in order to gain favor with God. Look, baptism and communion are very important teachings in the church, but they do not save you. Christ saves you. And so the ancient face of this was, okay, maybe you're a Gentile and maybe you've trusted in Christ and maybe you even have a testimony of the Holy Spirit being in you. However, you now must do this. And the lists have changed over the years, but the teaching is the same. Do you see it? Salvation by grace is not enough. You've got to add something to it. And I will say to you, for those of you who are wrestling with theology, and I will say this to you, that sometimes it takes time to understand and work through this, but let the Bible guide you. Let the Bible be your guide. If you're wrestling with this, you know what? We go through seasons where we wrestle with different points of theology, but make sure you land on what the Scripture says. Because this is what separates Christianity from every other religion, cult, ism in the world. Because they teach, no, you've got to do these things and then you'll earn your way. And the Bible says, no, Christ has paid your ransom in full. It is finished. Now you must just enter in. And for a lot of us, we go through periods of time. I was reading about uh, a, a theologian who's written many books. He's older in life. And he says he can still think of times in his childhood growing up in a legalistic home where he was told, if you do this, you're going to hell. If you do that, you're going to hell. If you go to the movies, you're going to hell. If you listen to that kind of music, you're going to hell. And he says, it still haunts him today, as grounded as he is in theology. Those memories still flood his mind and, and affect his conscience and guilt. And so some men came down and they said, look, you must do this or you are not saved. Now, what was Paul and Barnabas's reaction to this? When Paul and Barnabas had... <laughs> Great dissension. If you have the New King James verse 2, it says, no small dissension, that means a big one. 
or sharp dispute, the NIV says, and debate with them. I'm sure that as soon as Paul and Barnabas felt, found out what was going on, discovered this Bible study, they said, hey, hey, hey. And I'm sure there was shouting and passion and maybe even some anger. What are you talking about? This is the gospel. Oh, no, it's not the gospel. You've got to bring them in. And back and forth and up and down it went. And so they decided... Uh, and this was wise on the part of the church. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the mother church, if you will, to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Now to show you the seriousness of the issue, go to the book of Galatians to your right. Pass up First and Second Corinthians, you'll get to Galatians. Go to chapter 1. I want to show you, this is a letter that Paul wrote to these churches in this area uh, Many believe he wrote it just before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So look at Galatians 1, look at verse 6. Paul writes, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you, Galatians 1.6, by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, verse 8, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And just in case we missed it, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be anathema, under the divine curse of God. Brothers and sisters, this passage in its original writing was not written about Jehovah's Witnesses, which came along in the 1800s. It was not written about Mormonism that came along also in the early 1800s. It was written about the Judaizing heresy. And Paul says, if you preach this other gospel... You have not only changed and distorted the gospel, you are in jeopardy of being under the curse of Almighty God. Wow. That's sobering. But that is the setting, and many of you know, of the whole Galatian letter is this circumcision party trying to force people to convert before they can actually, quote-unquote, be saved. Now look at this. Go to chapter 2 in Galatians. Look at verse 11. I want to show you a scene that happened before the council in the life of Peter. Paul's writing and he says, But when Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, came to Antioch, so the place where all this stuff was happening with Gentiles, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, from the mother church in Jerusalem, verse 12, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So in Antioch, Peter came and he said, cool, this all started with the house of Cornelius. Anyway, let's eat, let's get together. And so they're having table fellowship. And as soon as the, the doorbell rang ding dong and the men from James came in, Peter went, I'm going to push back from this table. I'm not really eating with them. That's not, you didn't really see me at that table. And it is amazing to me how people can influence us so much. One moment, Peter is celebrating the grace of the gospel, and the next moment, some you know, uh, Judaistic believers walk in and, oh, no, I can't be eating with you now. No, no, no. Now, look at the extent to which this goes. 
and the rest of the Jews joined him, Peter, in hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas, look at this, he's the son of encouragement, the guy that embraced everybody, was carried away by their hypocrisy. Peter pushed back from the table, and Barnabas went, oh, yeah, that's right. We're Jews, they're Gentiles, we can't be sitting at this table. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, verse 14, about what? The truth of the gospel. Folks, do you see? Not only doctrinal, but relational. I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature. That's our pedigree. And not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law or the deeds of Torah, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified. The word justified is a legal term. It means to be declared innocent, not guilty, to be declared righteous before the court of Almighty God. We are justified how? By faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now look, the law is holy, the law is good, and we have not tossed out the Torah just because we're not saved by the law. We still think that thou shalt not murder is a pretty good commandment. Honoring your mother and your father, not lying, not stealing, not coveting, etc. We do appreciate those being on the walls of courthouses and even schools, although people are fighting it. There's nothing wrong with the commandments. The problem is us. You see, and we can't be justified. And so what happens in the great substitution of the cross? And I, just look at me for a moment. I want to show it to you. This is called the great exchange of the cross. Theologians paint it this way. All of my sin went to Jesus. All of Jesus' righteousness went to me. It's called the great exchange of the cross. God placed my sin upon the perfect sinless Lamb of God and gave me all his righteousness. And I am declared righteous now before the court of heaven by the finished work of Jesus Christ. When he took those nails in his hands and his feet, he was bearing in his body my sin and my shame on the cross that I might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. Amen? He's the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. We can't come any other way. Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one is coming to the Father except through me. Good works will not get you there. Now, good works are certainly what should flow out of a saved life. Don't get me wrong. The, uh, Romans 6.1 says, we should not use grace as an excuse for sin. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? It doesn't mean when you leave the church doors and you learn about grace, you go, well, I'm just going to go and live like hell. Uh, grace, is it grace, sure. It'll just bring more grace into my life. Yeah, and more discipline and more loss of rewards and more loss of your testimony among those who watch you the closest. See, there are implications when you don't live for God. Grace is something that we live out in expression of what God has done for us. It is not something that we trifle with. It's something that we say, God, thank you for what you've done for me. And now I want to respond with my love and gratitude to you. And so sharp debate that went on. And you can see the seriousness of the issue. Notice what happens now. Paul says, for through the law, or let's go back to verse 18. For if I rebuild, Galatians 2.18, what I have once destroyed. Imagine the wall between Jew and Gentile, if it's gone down. Now, I don't want to rebuild that wall. 
It's been destroyed. And remember, Peter's at the, the heart of all this. I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm so closely connected to the gospel, to the person of Christ, that when he died, I died. But Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Personalize this, folks, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. If you were the only person on the planet, he would have died for you. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. In Acts chapter 15, we have a really insightful chapter and an early look at the first uh, church council there in Jerusalem. And what brought about the church council was a disagreement. And I think, you know, we could probably say that the disagreement was uh, between well-meaning folks. And, you know, in the church, of course, we've had heretics over the years and we've had people who, you know, may be malicious in their doctrine. But we've had a lot of well-meaning people who, you know, were misinformed or we've had, uh, you know, particular ideas that had, to be, that had to be hammered out. And Acts 15 is a council, if you will. It's, a, it's an early look at how believers got together, leaders in the church, and dealt with uh, an issue. And, and this issue is really central to the whole Christian faith, and it's the issue of how is one saved. Does one have to keep certain laws and requirements? Does one have to be circumcised, for example, to be saved, to keep the customs of Moses? Does one have to, you know, uh, follow uh, the feast or does one have to uh, follow the food laws, for example? Uh, In this case, the argument could be made that they were saying you have to convert and become Jewish and then you can be saved. But without that, you can't be saved. And this is such a huge question, and it, it, it's, it's such a question for all ages, and it comes up in our time, because people start asking questions about what, you know, what is uh, the means of salvation? How do I get saved? Do I have to keep certain rules? Do I have to do certain things? What is it that saves me? And the, the more important question, folks, is who is it that saves you? Um, we, we must believe in a person. When, when, when we say the gospel. We're talking about the good news about a person. Salvation is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who made the way possible for salvation. He's the one that died on the cross. He's the one that triumphed over death and prophesied both, by the way, and accomplished it. He is salvation. His name, Jesus, means salvation. And just so you know, his last name is not Christ. The word Christ is Christos in Greek. It's the Hebrew form is Messiah. Jesus, his name means salvation. That's his actual name that he was, he was given. But Christ means anointed one. And what he was anointed to do was save. So Christ is his title. That's who he is. He's the Christ, the anointed one, anointed to save. Jesus is his name. And he is salvation. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 